Welcome to Books and Nachos, a podcast for those of us who find excitement in the pages of a good book. From fiction to nonfiction, graphic novels, and more, we're here to help you find something great to read. Mrs. Underwood looked up alertly, pushing her Harlequin glasses up on her nose. Do you have an office pass, Mr. Decker? Yes, I said and took the pistol out of my belt. I wasn't even sure it was loaded until it went off. I shot her in the head. Mrs. Underwood never knew what hit her, I'm sure. She fell sideways onto her desk and then rolled onto the floor, and that expectant expression never left her face. Hello, Books and Nachos listeners. I'm Arnie, your host, returning to continue my Stephen King retrospective series. For those of you turning in for the first time, welcome and thank you for downloading the show. In this series, I'm looking back at all of Stephen King's widely published novels and short stories. I'm reading all of these works in conjunction with Now Playing, another podcast I co-host, where we're watching and reviewing all the movies based on King's stories. But here at Books and Nachos, I'm going deeper, looking even at the stories that never had an adaptation, and I'm going primarily in order of the work's publication. If you go to booksandnachos.com, in the archives you can find my reviews of King's novels Carrie, Salem's Lot, The Shining, and, taking a break from the chronological order, King's most recent book, Dr. Sleep, as well as a couple of short stories from his Night Shift collection. But today, I have a totally different type of review, looking at a book that there were many reasons to not include in this retrospective series. That book is Rage by Richard Bachman. As King's constant readers know, starting in 1977, the author published novels under a pseudonym, that being Richard Bachman. There were five books published before the public became aware the two men were one and the same, and those books were Rage, The Long Walk, Roadwork, The Running Man, and Thinner. Of those five, Thinner and The Running Man are the two most famous, both having big screen adaptations. And given the popularity of those two, it was a given that I had to include the works of Richard Bachman in my Stephen King retrospective. But Rage is a special case that required even more consideration about its inclusion in this podcast series. As I said earlier, I'm doing all of Stephen King's books and short stories that are widely published. I have to include the caveat of widely published because there are so many obscurities that King has written, both fiction and nonfiction, that I would spend more time actually tracking them down than I would delivering these reviews to you constant listeners. For example, around the time Rage was published, King also published a short story based on a bedtime tale he'd tell his kids. Published as The King Family and the Wicked Witch, but originally called The King Family and the Farting Cookie, where the author could only type the word banana and his wife's hands turned into milk bottles. With items such as this, King is so prolific that if I was 100% inclusive, it would likely be years before I even got to his 1980s works. And given that his output is only increased with self-published essays available on Amazon, his regular column in Entertainment Weekly, and so much more, at a rate of one review per week, I may not live long enough to review Mr. Mercedes, King's novel announced to be released later this year. I do find myself reading far more King than I am reviewing, such as the author's 2013 essay entitled Guns, as research for these reviews. But for this retrospective series, I have to focus on the items that you, my dear listeners, can find and read along with me if you're so interested. So in that spirit, 
I'm reviewing only the more mainstream Stephen King works, the novels and the short stories that were collected in mass-market book form. Which leads us to Rage. Rage was published in 1977 under the name Richard Bachman and stayed in print that way until 1985. When King was outed as Bachman, the first four novels he'd released under that name were collected and re-released in a compilation called The Bachman Books by Stephen King, the publisher and author vastly increasing sales by putting King's golden name on the cover in a huge font. But in 1997, King asked his publisher to take Rage out of print. With that request, the Bachman books were broken up. The Long Walk, Roadwork, and The Running Man are now once again published individually, and Rage is gone, theoretically forever. As such, you can't right now go to most bookstores and get Rage. You can't order it new off Amazon or any place else I found, and there is no digital edition. But I grew up with Rage, both the book and the emotion. <laughs> I read the Bachman books in the mid-80s when they were newly released in paperback, and to me, these four stories are a major part of King's bibliography. More, there is so much to discuss with Rage. After all, there is a reason King doesn't want it in print any longer. So for you constant listeners who like to read along with my reviews, this book is out there. I did own this as part of my subscription to the Stephen King Library. It was sent to me in the early 1990s. But because I wanted a copy I could annotate and mark up, I picked up a copy of the Bachman books used for under three bucks. If you don't have a good local used bookstore in your area, Amazon has over 300 copies of this book used for as low as a penny. That's a quarter of a cent per novel in this collection. I got this Bachman book, and I immediately tore out the last three books. I carried only Rage with me to read. And when my wife Marjorie asked what I was doing, I explained this book was the one not available in ebook format. And I said to her, this is going to be my catcher in the rye. Wherever I go, this book is coming too. I was jokingly referring to John Hinckley and Mark David Chapman and even the subplot of that Mel Gibson movie Conspiracy Theory about how many psychopaths carry that Salinger classic with them. Then, as I read Rage, I realized my statement was more than a little prophetic, but we'll get to that a bit later. Of course, if you want one of the original copies of Rage, printed in paperback before King's Connection was public, those will run you over $1,000. The 1983 reprint is over $300 or more, but that's for the collector, not a reader who's literally going to tear this book apart to read it. For the reader, despite King wanting this book out of print, this book is widely available and cheap. The Bachman books became a number one bestseller. Hundreds of thousands, if not millions of copies have been printed in the 20 years between when Rage hit shelves and when King had it pulled. So despite... My internal questioning and debate, Rage's inclusion in this look back at King's work, was really never much in doubt. Rage was originally published in September of 1977, just about eight months after King's The Shining. Of note, The Shining was King's first hardcover best-selling novel. Carrie and Salem's Lot found their fame in paperback, and then with the aid of the Carrie movie. With The Shining, King still riding the popularity brought by De Palma's film, the author broke into the top echelon of writers. But Rage was published directly to paperback, with no hardcover release, and not only wasn't it a paperback bestseller, but, in King's words, quote, it didn't sell well at all, unquote. None of the first four Bachman books did. So the question must be asked, why did King do it? I'm sure his constant readers have read King's explanations, and by explanations that is plural. When the Bachman books were first collected in 1985, King wrote an introduction called Why I Was Bachman. Eleven years later, in 1996, 
when the four books were republished in hardcover, he had a new introduction, The Importance of Being Bachman. The two accounts differ slightly, but those, plus King's interviews at the time, do paint a picture of an author still new to success trying to navigate the waters. So for those who don't know, I'll summarize the birth and death of Richard Bachman here with my review of his first novel. The creation of Richard Bachman wasn't completely premeditated. King didn't sit around and pretend to be someone else. In fact, he pulled the name out of thin air. When asked what his pseudonym should be by the publisher, he said he was reading a Richard Stark book and Bachman Turner Overdrive was playing on his stereo. So Richard Bachman was born and he took care of business. From my research, there is no single event that spurred the creation of Richard Bachman. But in 1977, King was a very wealthy man. The royalties on his best-selling novels, plus the checks from Hollywood for rights to turn his stories into films, took him in four short years from working days as a teacher, his family of four living in a trailer, the author banging out novels with a typewriter he had to hold on his lap because there was no room to have a table, to being a full-time writer with a very comfortable lifestyle. In interviews around this time, the author has said the money came in slowly, so his family was able to be smarter about it and not dive into the excesses of rock and roll stars and the like who come into millions literally overnight. His books took some time to find their footing. But by the time The Shining was released, King was what most people would consider wealthy. But King is a man plagued by neuroses. I mentioned in my review of The Shining that, in interviews, King has laid claim to a lot of fears, from flying to monsters under the bed and he uses his own terrors to write his novels. But beyond being hounded by fears, King's neurotic tendencies spread to his own success. Having struggled for years as an author, having at least three novels refused by book publishers, King wondered what was it that made him so successful so quickly? Was it his own writing? Was it De Palma's film adaptation? Was it sheer luck? The way to determine that, per King, was to try again. Publish novels under a different name, and see if he could find wild success twice. Now, if I may interject, I'm not certain it's a fair trial. After all, Stephen King was in the business of being Stephen King. In addition to getting used to the money, the author was getting used to the fame, and when he'd go off on book tours, his children would say, he's going off to be Stephen King. I've had the fortune to talk on and off the record with many authors, some of them New York Times best-selling authors, some just up and coming. And what they all agree on is this is what authors do, even successful ones. First you write, but then you promote. You do book signings. You push as hard as you can to get people to read your books. It doesn't matter if you're a college student or a famous actor. You publish a book and you need to be a shameless self-promoter. When Carrie was first published, King was doing interviews with his local paper and anyone else who would listen and dreamt of getting a major interview by Playboy. He did interviews when he was up and coming, and then many, many more once he was famous. I know he's done a ton of interviews. For every one King book I've reviewed here, I've read a dozen or more interviews collected both on the internet, as well as in the books The Complete Stephen King Universe, and there are books devoted to just compiling King interviews, such as Feast of Fear and Bare Bones. No, Stephen, your success was not accidental nor luck. You put a lot of work into it, not just in honing your writing craft, but in promoting the living hell out of your work. But with Richard Bachman, King set himself up to fail, a fact King acknowledged in the Why I Was Bachman introduction. These books were intentionally released without fanfare. King didn't want to bring his publishing prowess to promote these books, but yet in a way he did. He used his stature to kill them. 
He requested that New American Library, the publishers of Bachman books under their signet imprint, release these novels without fanfare so they'd just be stuck on a rack along with hundreds of other pulp paperbacks. Most first-time authors, if they requested this, would be laughed at by the publisher, who's in it to sell as many copies as humanly possible. But King, being a best-selling author, had the might to force his own books into obscurity. And in the end, it proved a very profitable relationship for the publishers at NAL, for this relationship eventually led King to leave Doubleday and bring his real novels, the ones with his name on the cover, to Signet. But I want to give a comparative. Richard Bachman versus Clive Barker. Barker is another author of fantastical fiction that I adore. Maybe someday, if I live long enough, I'll do a Barker retrospective after I'm done with King. Barker was talented and got published on his own writing ability, but there's no doubt Barker's road to success became more certain when Stephen King said one famous sentence. I have seen the future of horror. His name is Clive Barker. King took his name and bestowed a huge gift to Barker, making thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of King's constant readers give this unknown Brit a try. Imagine if King had said in the 1970s, I have seen the future of horror. His name is Richard Bachman. Sure, King was newer to success in 1977 than he was in 1987. He had a smaller audience, but he still could have opened doors for Bachman if he'd wanted to. Instead, he wanted the opposite. He wanted the hardest road a man could walk. Well, a man who was guaranteed publication, at least. More, Bachman, being, you know, not a real person, had to actually eschew all forms of publicity lest he be found out. He was imagined by King as being reclusive, refusing the interviews, refusing the publicity. It would be so much easier for King to do this today, do interviews only by email, create a fake Twitter account. But back in 1977, Bachman's books had no promotion whatsoever. Well, at least not much. But the obsessive, constant readers were able to figure it out, giving Bachman's books a bit of underground buzz. In early interviews, King would discuss his unprinted works, the ones publishers refuse, and he'd mention them by name. With these clues dropped long before any of the books saw publication, likely before King even entertained the notion of a nom de plume, plus careful readers noting similarities in the writing style and book dedications, the rumors grew that Bachman was King, that King was Bachman. Even before the internet, the legend spread and print interviews fanned the flames asking the author if he wrote The Running Man. But King would lie and say, no, that's not me. He even went so far as to hire someone to pose as the author on the cover of Thinner, Bachman's first hardcover release. In one interview in 1983, King said, quote, I know who Dick Bachman is. I went to school with Dickie Bachman, and that isn't his real name. He lives over in New Hampshire, and that boy is crazy. And sooner or later, this will get back to him, and he'll come to Bangor, and he'll kill me. That's all, unquote. King would wryly continue, quote, Several times I've gotten his mail, and several times he's gotten mine. He's at Signet because of me, but I am not, not Richard Bachman, unquote. I have to wonder if he said not, not Richard Bachman, because that's a double negative, and being a former English teacher, he would know that he's actually saying I am Richard Bachman. <laughs> but to some degree, I actually think King was telling the truth. Yes, he wrote these books, but was King Bachman? King is a writer with a vivid imagination. Often, King says the characters in his fiction tell the stories he writes. He really thinks of the characters as people who make their own decisions, or at least King realizes what decisions the characters would naturally make. In this way, Bachman was one of King's characters who took on a life of his own. King wrote a biography for Bachman, 
A prolific storyteller with a penchant for good characterization, King gave Bachman a wife named Claudia and a son who died at the age of six. So, is King Bachman? Is King Ben Mears, the fictional author protagonist of Salem's Lot? Is King his characters? I can see that as a bit of a gray area. But if King is in charge of the characters in his novels, able to choose who lives and dies, in the real world, King lost control of his creation, Bachman, when an intrepid fan went to the Library of Congress and uncovered proof of King's lie, that he was, indeed, Bachman. Despite being gracious about going public about Richard Bachman, King was not quite ready to part ways with the author, and this feeling of loss is something that would lead King to write his novel, The Dark Half. Even more, I state that King never went all in with Bachman. The author certainly hedged his bets. King had shopped Rage around in the early 1970s before Carrie was published, and in interviews, King said that Rage was almost picked up for publication, but in the end, everyone passed. Now, King gave it another rewrite before it was put out under the Bachman name, but all the publishers passed on Rage when King was an unknown author. His newly minted best-selling status is what opened the door for this book's publication. But if you've heard my reviews for Carrie, then Salem's Lot, and then The Shining, You've heard me discuss how much King grew as an author in just a few short years. Perhaps having his entire job be writing and not split with teaching helped give him the focus he needed to excel. I can state, looking at his published novels, his writing continued to improve. But let's look at the Bachman books. Rage was one of King's first novels. Originally titled Getting It On, he started writing it in high school and finished it in 1971. It's likely the earliest works of King's I will ever review and despite any polishing, he considers it the work of a teenager. The Long Walk, Bachman's second book, King is called the first novel he ever wrote, even though it was at least after Rage was started, written while the author was a freshman at the University of Maine in 1966 and 67. The fourth Bachman book, The Running Man, was also written before Carrie. Of the four original Bachman books, only Roadwork, the third novel published under the pseudonym, was written by King after he was a published author, written in 1974, after Salem's Lot but before The Shining. So really, King gave Richard Bachman his second-rate material. Bachman was like a literary Salvation Army, taking these cast-off books that publishers refused and then putting them out. Now, why would King think these books would be the ones to rocket Bachman to fame to rival the books he'd written under his birth name? He states again and again that he thought The Long Walk and Rage were good enough to be published, and Rage almost was. It was the book that began King's relationship with Doubleday, paving the way for the publication of Carrie. But in the end, publishers decided these books weren't good enough, and King thought he knew better. Having written a bit myself, I completely understand the hubris of completing a manuscript and saying, THIS IS GENIUS! only to have a shock akin to a cold shower in the morning when others critique the work and tell you that your writing isn't as good as you think it is. I can only think that it was ego that made King think he knew better than these experienced publishers and that these stories were just genius that was not understood by the suits at the book companies. Finally, Bachman had a slower output. King kept himself in the literary headlines, publishing, publishing, publishing. Carrie in 1974, Salem's Lot in 75, The Shining in 77, Night Shift and The Stand in 78, Dead Zone in 79, Firestarter in 80. By contrast, Bachman got Rage in 77, The Long Walk in 1979, Roadwork in 1981, The Running Man in 1982, and finally Thinner in 1984. 
Maybe Bachman's output was that of most authors, a book every other year, but even then it was mostly books that King repeatedly said he kept in a trunk full of discarded manuscripts deemed unworthy for publication. Most of the new material King saved for himself. I mean, King certainly didn't gamble with the success of The Stand by putting that out by the unknown Richard Bachman. That went out as a King book with huge fanfare. So as King admitted in his 1985 introduction to the compiled four books, that Bachman never found tremendous success is not an indication of anything. King felt the experiment ended too soon. The author was not ready to reveal his double identity. Thinner was his best-selling novel thus far. But Bachman's career was cut short when one of King's constant readers noticed the similarities in writing style and names in the dedication section. A trip to the Library of Congress to look at copyright records revealed King to be the man behind the books. But King was a good sport about it. After all, this reader, Steve Brown, he didn't run to the Inquirer with this information and cash a check. He was no paparazzi or TMZ reporter. He actually wrote to NAL, King's publisher under both names by that time, asking for direction on what to do with the information. And while King would be somewhat bitter over the loss of his pseudonym, the author called the intrepid reader himself and told Brown to use the information. He actually encouraged Brown to go public and take credit for the discovery. In my mind, that was a really classy move by King. Others may have complained about invasion of privacy and even threatened lawsuits, but King gives this guy a personal phone call and gives him a few moments of fame? All class. But back to the question of why he needed Bachman. Yes, an attempt to analyze and reproduce his success is one of King's motivating factors, but I don't think it's the only reason. As I mentioned, King has some compulsions, and one of those is to be read. As a teenager and young adult, his drive was to be a published author, first settling for publication in magazines, but driving to be more and more read. He doesn't like to write for the sake of writing. He likes to write for the sake of giving others something to read. Not all artists are like that. My co-host at Now Playing, Stuart, and I have had long conversations about the nature of art, and if creating art for its own sake is a worthy endeavor, even if it's never seen, or if the importance of art is its impact. To let you know which side I come down on, I would not be producing a podcast that no one listened to. That would be a totally masturbatory effort in my mind. That's the mindset King shares. Now, who knows what drives King in that way? What makes him need all his writings to be publicly consumed, even on such a small scale as Richard Bachman presented? And who knows what makes King write so much, how he can whip out five novels, some of which reach a thousand pages, in the time it would take others to write a short story. But no matter the cause, these compulsions have driven King to be the massive success he is. Yet he was feeling stymied by the rituals of publication. To the big publishing houses, including King's publisher at the time, Doubleday, an author is a brand. And a best-selling, prolific author is a brand that must be protected and cultivated to return maximum profit. Tom Clancy, Michael Crichton, Stephen King, Danielle Steele, all these authors are brand names as well as people. And the wisdom of the 70s per Doubleday and most major publishing houses was that an author should only put out one book per year. To do more than that would possibly overwhelm the reader with too much material, and the release of the new book may cannibalize sales of the previous book. So Stephen King was there with four completed novels, three previously rejected for publication, and to publish only one per year meant King's newer fiction would have to wait. The desire to be read won out, so King made deals with the publishers that Doubleday would continue to release the Stephen King fiction, but New American Library, under the imprint of Signet Fiction, would publish and release Richard Bachman's stories. This would be King's first experimentation with publication, something he continues to do to this day. 
King is constantly experimenting with the classic publication model. In 1982, he'd go to a small publishing house, Grant, to do the Dark Tower series. In 1996, King released The Green Mile as a serial series of paperback books. In 2000, King would be one of the first authors to embrace ebooks by releasing Riding the Bullet exclusively on digital. And he'd try that same year to write The Plant, an honor system pay-as-you-go novel that died when people stopped paying. In 2013, King would reverse that stance, refusing to allow ebook publication of Joyland so readers would support bookstores and remember the feel of paper in their hands. King is not always satisfied with the status quo of publication, and here he took his first stab at changing that. Finally, it must be said up front that the Bachman books have a different flavor than King's popular fiction. Firstly, this will be my first Stephen King review where the source fiction contains no supernatural element. In Rage, there are no psychics, no ghosts, no telekinetics, and no vampires. This didn't strike me as odd when reading it this time. After all, King has written many more realistic stories in the past 30 years, including novellas Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption, The Body, short stories like The Woman in the Room and The Ledge, and full novels like Gerald's Game, Dolores Claiborne, and more. But to a Stephen King fan in 1977, this book would seem a complete departure from the author's usual fare, being more of a dramatic thriller than anything horrific. Also, Bachman's stories are a bit meaner, a bit more pessimistic. Now, King flirted with pessimism at the ends of his novels. Carrie had a lot of death, but there were survivors. King wanted to kill everyone in Salem's Lot in The Shining, but his characters won out and good eventually triumphed over evil. I think this can honestly be seen as a maturation process. King was growing up, and success was making him a more optimistic person. Remember, at this point, King and his family thought the bad days of drinking were all behind them, the financial problems and frustration with publication leading him to a happier present. Things were looking up, and it was reflected in his fiction. But most of Bachman's stories were written earlier in King's life, when he was a teenager picked on by bullies at his high school, events that would strongly influence Carrie and shape the man's fiction to this very day. Growing up in a poor household run by a single mother, overweight and somewhat nerdy, King's childhood life was not idyllic, and the author would escape into fiction, both his own and others, to find his bliss. But his stories of the time were far darker, more violent than his popular later fiction. Again, I reiterate, of the five books published as Bachman before his discovery, three were written before Carrie, and the fourth was written between Salem's Lot and The Shining, and even that last one was written at a dark time in the author's life as King wrote it in the clutches of grief over the death of his mother. That fifth final book, Thinner, was the only book that King wrote with the intent of it secretly being published by Bachman, and it's the book that had his secret revealed. King would write that his mistake was Thinner was truly a Stephen King book, the only King book with Bachman's name on it. And even after Discovery, King would return to Bachman twice, once in 1996 with The Regulators, and again in 2007 with Blaze, King using the Bachman name to indicate almost an imprint of King's fiction that's a bit more grim and gritty. King continues Bachman's biography. He claims Bachman was killed when King's identity was found, but that these other two novels were written posthumously. Kind of a cute little way of dealing with Bachman, again, being viewed as a real person. As I review each of these Bachman books as part of this King writing retrospective, I'll look at each book and say, is this book a Bachman book, or is it a book by King? Though I hope you, the constant listener, won't mind if I refer to the author by his more well-known birth name throughout the review. 
I will make the determination of whose book it is based on several factors. First, does the book have supernatural elements, more of a King Hallmark than a Bachman one? Or is the book dour and a bit ugly in attitude, cynical and bitter? Is this book a really short read, or is it pushing a thousand pages? I think a lot of these factors will divide the works into a Stephen King camp and a Richard Bachman camp. But for sure, this first book, Rage, I would put firmly in the Richard Bachman territory. Story-wise, Rage is exceptionally simple. Coming in at 170 pages, practically a short story by King's current standards, Rage tells of a single school day in the life of Charlie Decker, a student at Placerville High School in the town of Placerville, Maine. King Clue number one, it's set in a school. Clue number two, it's set in Maine. Charlie has a number of psychological problems. He admits on the first page of the book that he's lost his mind, but he later says he's as sane as anyone, save for a, quote, crooked wheel upstairs. He is plagued by a nervous stomach that causes him immense pain, and once went on a date he even threw up. Charlie feels alienated by his classmates and is only one person he considers a friend, his longtime chum Joe McKennedy. More than just not being in any popular cliques, Charlie also thinks that his teachers intentionally embarrass and chide him. Charlie's reaction to this is a violent one. When the book opens, Charlie is being expelled from Placerville High for brutally beating his physics teacher with a pipe wrench. Charlie has armed himself with the tool as a security blanket to make him feel powerful in a place where he was impotent in all senses of the word. When the teacher embarrassed Charlie, the student responded violently, hospitalizing the educator with a fractured skull. Now in this day and age, that would be the story, right? It'd probably be little else. Charlie is expelled, most likely jailed. However, this was written in the 60s and early 70s, though published in 1977, and so Charlie is merely suspended. There are parent conferences with school administrators, Charlie fakes a heartfelt apology to the nearly comatose teacher and his wife, and Charlie is actually allowed to return to school for class. What no one knows is that upon returning, Charlie has upgraded his self-defense mechanism. Instead of carrying a pipe wrench, Charlie now wields his father's pistol. The book begins with the start of one spring school day, when Charlie is called to the principal's office to finally be told his case is being closed, he's being expelled. With this news, Charlie goes to his locker, gets the gun, sets the locker on fire to create a distraction, and returns to the algebra class where he shoots the teacher in the head. Another teacher tries to enter the room, Charlie shoots him as well. Outside the classroom, the plot progresses as you might expect in regards to Charlie, the high school shooter. The police are called in, sharpshooters take their point, various officials come in over the PA and try to talk Charlie down, but with his gun and hostages, Decker always has the upper hand. Inside the classroom, however, the book takes its own unusual spin as Charlie tells the other students who are going to, quote, get it on. Now to me, growing up, get it on was slang for sex. However, to Charlie, get it on means to talk openly and honestly with each other, tell deep secrets and be stronger for it. Charlie wants to get rid of the social bullshit that divides the students in class and their families out of class and acknowledge that every single person in the room, from Carol Granger, the pretty high school valedictorian, to destitute, unshowered student nicknamed Pigpen, all have the same insecurities. Imagine the John Hughes movie, The Breakfast Club, if it were a group of students held at gunpoint instead of in Saturday detention, and you're actually not too far off on what King created. People tell their stories not because Charlie forces them to, but because they want to. Charlie creates this room-wide dynamic where, in the lawlessness of a room held hostage, all the students feel free to express themselves, and through this discourse, they realize 
they're not so different after all. In fact, the students have wanted to get it on for a long time. Charlie's violent act gave them the freedom to do it. But that sounds uplifting and enriching, right? Like that moment at the end of The Breakfast Club where Anthony Michael Hall has the voiceover of their unified letter to the principal and Bender raises his fist in triumph. Well, while there are some similarities to be sure, rage gets a lot nastier. See, not only are all these students suffering similar torments as they stand at the precipice of adulthood, but they must acknowledge also that they have a common enemy. Adults. Parents. School administrators. The entire class feels under the oppressive thumb of those around them. The expectations to perform in school, subject to the whims of their parents. It's not just a recognition that each student shares similar hang-ups. It's that there is a cause to those hang-ups that needs to be overthrown. More, there is one student, former star football player Ted Jones, who refuses to get it on. While a 21st century reader, that meaning me, may actually find Ted the only sane character in the entire novel, the other students indulge willingly in some Stockholm Syndrome, one even requesting a bathroom pass only to willingly return to the classroom. Only Ted refuses to take part in Charlie's reindeer games, standing by saying society's norms that Charlie should be taken down and arrested. This makes Ted the only person Charlie fears, and so Charlie proceeds to slowly tear Ted down, and the rest of the class follows. If Ted won't get it on, the other students will, and they air Ted's dirty laundry for him, such as how Ted had to quit football due to his alcoholic mother. Ted's world is slowly unraveled as he refuses to take part in the communion occurring around him. To Charlie, Ted is the bad guy. Ted has always been the bad guy, the popular jock, and that is the tenor of this book, a book where an outcast becomes a class hero, while the big man on campus becomes the alienated one. To go back to the breakfast club, imagine if Anthony Michael Hall had pulled a gun, not a flare gun, but a real gun, and got everyone else to alienate, mock, and hate Emilio Estevez, and you'd be on the right track. It's like the breakfast club meets the Lord of the Flies. In short, to be blunt, this is a masturbation fantasy of a high school pariah, and honestly, not a very good one. Now, the idea of an outcast high school loner gaining the power to overcome their tormentors is one King would revisit in Carrie. The book King submitted to Doubleday after Rage was refused, and these two books have a lot in common thematically. In both, the protagonist is a troubled high school student with few to no friends who finds a way to become powerful. If you go back and listen to my review of Carrie here at Books and Nachos, you'll see that I compared her to the troubled teens who take guns to school. Here, King has written that very story. So what is it that makes Carrie such an engrossing, fun read and rage a test of patience and endurance? The answer comes down to the reader's empathy for the main character. Carrie White had the deck stacked against her. Her father was dead, her mother was crazy and abusive. Carrie was fat, pimple-covered, and not too bright. On top of all that, when we're introduced to her, we're witnessing her undergo what could be assumed to be the most humiliating experience in her life. Standing naked in the girls' locker room, having her first period, being pelted with tampons by her mocking peers. It's an instant recipe for empathy. You feel about Carrie White how you'd feel about a mangy puppy you saw getting kicked. But Carrie gained power over her peers when she uncovered her latent telekinesis. When she got this power, she started to feel more confident, and coupled with getting asked to prom by Tommy Ross, Carrie the Caterpillar started to emerge from her cocoon as Carrie the Butterfly. We watch this, and due to King's epistolary storytelling, we know it's destined to all go tragically, fatally wrong, but we root for her. Finally, 
Carrie suffers the impossible, a humiliation even worse than the one at the beginning of the book, and a crushing, soul-killing realization that no matter what she does, how she dresses, who she dates, she will never, ever be accepted by her fellow students. I asked in that review if Carrie was a hero or villain in that book, but God knows, no matter what she was, we understood her rage as she killed those who mocked her in a citywide reign of destruction. King's storytelling shows us her as a weakling, growing strong, and her final rampage. Charlie Decker's story is told very differently, though. When the book starts, Charlie has already beaten a teacher nearly to death with a pipe wrench, and then kills two teachers really quickly with his father's gun. We understand that Charlie doesn't have many friends, we're told that on the first page, but we start off with Charlie the high school terrorist, not Charlie the picked-upon loser. Later in the book, Charlie recounts some stories of when he was picked on, beaten up, or humiliated, but because we hear about those only later, it doesn't engender the same sympathy. We know Charlie would end up in power as we read those stories. And I have no question if Charlie is the hero or the villain. To the book, he's the hero, the gun-wielding savior who freed the students to get it on. To me, he is a villain who ruthlessly beat one teacher and killed two more. I'm supposed to root for this kid? Next, Carrie was genetically blessed with her power. She didn't seek it out. It came out naturally, giving her an inborn strength she never knew she had. This strength helped her build her confidence, but she rarely used it except to stand up for herself against her crazed mother. Charlie had no inborn supernatural gift. He stole his father's gun. It's more realistic, but it's less interesting for its mundane nature. Also, I find nothing admirable about finding strength by stealing a gun. That's a frightening thing, not one to root for. Stories of beat-down people overcoming adversity are exceptional when they do so by bettering themselves or working hard, not just by grabbing a gun. It's a lazy and loathsome way to be superior, to threaten. More, Charlie is violent. In one of his sessions getting it on and telling anecdotes from his life to fellow students, he discusses how he got the pipe wrench and carried it with him like a security blanket. Just having that pipe wrench made Charlie feel powerful, as Carrie's telekinesis did for her. But Carrie had to undergo a massive humiliation and the death of her prom date before she unleashed her power. Charlie was just called to the blackboard by a cruel teacher before he pulled out the wrench and went to town. Carrie and Charlie also share another trait, abusive parents that keep them down and make sex a frightening subject. In Carrie, that figure is Margaret White, locking Carrie in a closet, making her urinate in a corner, beating the girl, and screaming about her dirty pillows, and after the blood, the boys come, and discussing her usually chaste marriage. In Rage, Charlie's parents are still alive and together, and it's the father who's abusive. It's hard to understand why, because the character is so one-dimensional, but we're told he's a violent man who always hated his son. Unlike Carrie, whose motivations for her reactions were primal and basic, all of Charlie's bad behaviors and hang-ups can be traced right back to Carl Decker. Carl once took Charlie on a fishing trip with his buddies. In his father's presence, Charlie wasn't much of a hunter, but in private, Charlie would sneak his father's gun and kill animals for fun. It was his father's gun collection that gave Charlie the weapon to overtake the school. But Carl was also the first adult Charlie outsmarted. When Charlie was very little, his father beat him for a misdeed, and Charlie ran to his mother and told her what Carl did. This changed the dynamic of the husband-wife relationship, estranging them, though they stayed married. From that moment on, Charlie's mother Rita was his fierce protector, a lioness protecting her cub from abusive Carl. Carl still beat Charlie when he could get away with it, but overall this cowed Carl, and he went from a strong, in-charge family man to a passive-aggressive drunk. More... 
Through overheard conversations, Charlie would develop quite the Oedipal complex. A textbook case of Freudian psychology, Charlie wants to kill his father and has weird sexual dreams about his mother. Wet dreams of his mother giving him an enema. He traces this back to his father as well. Charlie's first memory of life is hearing the creaking sound from his parents' bedroom and his mother saying, I don't care if you didn't. Stop it and let me sleep. Later in life, on that hunting trip with his father, he overheard the men talking about how they'd react if they found their wives cheated on them. Carl Decker had the most violent and serious reaction of the group, first saying he'd castrate the man with his hunting knife. Then asked what he'd do to his wife, he said, quote, The Cherokees used to slit their noses. The idea was to put a cunt right up on their faces so everyone in the tribe could see what part of them got them in trouble. These experiences gave Charlie serious sexual hang-ups, from the wet dreams to severe impotence when, in high school, a college girl tried to seduce him and he couldn't maintain an erection. And his mother also inhibited his other relationships with girls. We're told, in another time when Charlie was getting it on, that he had a crush on a girl, but his mother made him go to her birthday party in a suit, sabotaging Charlie's chances by dressing him like a nerd and resulting in Charlie's beating at the hand of a bully. All of these stories, like the entire book, is told from Charlie's first-person perspective. But they seem to exist to say, He's only a lad. You really can't blame him. His parents made him this way. It's really too simple, and Charlie comes off as too smart to fall prey to such obvious influence. And in that regard, Charlie is simply not as sympathetic a character as Carrie. Carrie White was introduced as so terrified to be reduced to speaking in bovine-like grunts. She's as mentally weak as she is physically. But Charlie, as written, Charlie is the smartest guy in the room. This is truly where the wish-fulfillment fantasy part of the novel comes through clearest, and in its most arrogant, sickening way. Every adult Charlie talks to, from the principal to the school psychologist to the chief of police, Charlie is two steps ahead of them. He's able to tear them apart by being quick-tongued and by threatening his hostages. Charlie can force these foolish adults to do his bidding, be it leave the school, answer stupid questions, or discuss if they've ever given or received oral sex. Charlie has the school administration by the balls, and we're inclined to believe it's not because he has a gun. While he makes threats to the authority figures, the only student he ever really considers shooting is Ted. No, we're supposed to believe Charlie is in power because he is the intellectual superior of everyone around him. The arrogance that oozes out of Charlie is, well, honestly, familiar. It's the arrogance of a teenager who thinks he knows better than everyone else. Hell, that partly is the definition of a teenager. But the important thing to realize is that while a teenager may think he's the smartest person in the room, in this book, Charlie really is the smartest. His little mind games work on every foolish adult. No one can match wits with Charlie. So it's an arrogant teenager written by someone still young enough to have not yet realized the folly of the adolescent ego. Charlie self-diagnoses his rampage as misplaced aggression, wishing he'd killed his father instead of his algebra teacher. But isn't that a bit too simple an explanation when there's a dead body on the floor? Not that you would know it from reading the book. Now, if I was taken hostage in a room with a corpse on the floor, brain matter and bones splattered around, a pool of blood expanding around the head, I couldn't focus on anything else. The terror, the revulsion, would be too great. But this author doesn't want us to think about it. He's more interested in the students getting it on, telling tales of backseat sex and mean parents. And really, King only wants Charlie to get it on, to tell his side of the tale and explain why he's not crazy, but just too smart to deal with the bullshit around him. 
The book opens with the school principal asking Charlie why he beat his physics teacher, and near the book's end, Charlie gets it on, telling his students what he wouldn't tell that suit in the administration office. I think that the motives for Charlie's violence are supposed to be the crux of the novel, the mystery that keeps the reader turning the page. But long before that end chapter, his motivations are crystal clear and paper thin. As for the other students in the class, I have trouble keeping their names straight. They're the most cardboard of characters, and each gets at most one moment to get it on and tell their secrets. It's Charlie who gets it on again and again. It's Charles in charge of this class. He doesn't want friends. He needs someone to confess to. And these one-dimensional disciples seem hungry for someone to step up and let them tell their stories and put aside their usual false faces. They're not as smart as Charlie, so he needs to lead the way. Except Ted. Ted resists Charlie's influence, and Ted is the only student who, through Charlie's thoughts, we're inclined to believe may match his intelligence. We're told Charlie and Ted were the only two students who passed a particularly difficult exam. So if that's supposed to mean Ted is the only one in the story who's a mental threat to Charlie, it's only told, it's never shown. Certainly Ted's actions on the day of the story don't show any intelligence or cunning, just a knack for avoiding the cult mentality that grips the rest of the students who are enthralled with Charlie and is getting it on. And Charlie revels in that, thinking that those students, freed by getting it on, quote, looked like gods, young, wise, and golden, end quote. But why should we really care about Charlie? Carrie was beat down and we rooted for her to stand up. But with Charlie, who are we rooting for? I fully believe the reader is intended to not just root for, but to empathize with Charlie. To say, yeah, I feel picked on and alienated too. Yeah, I don't like my teachers either. And we're supposed to cheer him on when he exposes the buffoonery of the authority figures. It's wish-fulfillment fantasy telling the geeks and the lonely that everyone else is just like them. Of course, the dangerous part is it's also telling the high school misfit that a pipe wrench, or even better, a gun, will gain them respect. This requires an assumed empathy for Charlie on the part of the author. You really do have to be hip to his vibe for this to work. You have to be soaking in those feelings of disaffection and angst, and then you'll cheer Charlie on. And I did when I first read this book when I was a 13-year-old high school student. But reading this book as an adult... In the 21st century, 43 years after it was written, my empathy for Charlie is gone, especially in the wake of the real-world terror teenagers like Charlie have performed. And I do need to touch on the topic of actual school shootings. I will confess that I went into this book with a queasy feeling, wondering if I could read this book and not just constantly think of horrors like Columbine and Sandy Hook. What was gritty fiction in 1971 and 1977 has turned into terrifying news headlines in 2014, and my memory from my previous time reading this book was that the entire story was that of a mass murderer in a school with a gun. The book does start off that way, and it reads like a recounting of some of those real-world incidents, with the disaffected student stealing his father's gun from the study, smuggling it into school, walking into a classroom, and shooting the teacher in the head. The book clearly could have gone the way of the real-world massacres, with Charlie shooting the students, probably starting with Ted and going from there. But King isn't creating a homicide fantasy, he's creating a comeuppance fantasy. Few people die in this story, and those that do happen early on. After that, it's just a long-term hostage situation. But let's not avoid the bare fact that the hero of this novel, our protagonist, the one we're supposed to cheer on, is a mass murderer who takes a school hostage. And there's a reason this book is out of print. King asked his publishers to stop printing it. 
In at least four shootings or hostage situations, the shooter either cited Rage as an inspiration or had a copy of Rage in his possession. One, in Washington State in 1996, even emulated the book so far as to begin his rampage in an algebra class. If you want to read up on these crimes, I did. They are San Gabriel High School in California in 1988, Jackson County High School in Kentucky in 1989, Frontier Middle School in 1996, and a prayer meeting in West Paducah, Kentucky in 1997. For the 1988 California school shooting, I read a 1990 interview with the gunman. He said, quote, I had a message I wanted to get across, of unmasking people, of disrobing the images everyone puts on, of making people real, end quote. This guy wanted to get it on and be the hero Charlie Decker was. But the students in that class didn't have an epiphany. They were scared to death. The first three of those four incidents were, like the book, primarily a hostage situation, perhaps with the fantasy of getting it on. But the last one, though, that was just a shooting and eight people were hit. This is when King asked the book to be taken out of print. Now, if I can show a bit of my own political hand, I hate censorship. I sit here for hours every week speaking my mind on pop culture, and I'll be goddamned if I would want someone to stifle my opinion or tell me I can't speak my mind, saying what I say with the words I want to say it. But I also think that under the right circumstances, evil acts can be made fantastic in fiction. A normal person will let it wash off his or her back and take it for what it is. Fiction. But for those who are already a bit unhinged, it can be the catalyst for terrible acts. It could be the game Grand Theft Auto, it could be the movie Natural Born Killers, or it could be the book Rage. I think it's important in a free society, though, that we have this type of fiction, of entertainment, available. Despite that this book's early chapters could be seen as a how-to for a school shooting and a best-case scenario for a heroic gunman, I don't think this book should be forced out of print by any government or parent group or organization. That said, I completely understand and support King's decision to stop Rage from being printed further. King is the author, the owner of the words. What I find utterly fascinating is that King almost predicted this when he wrote Salem's Lot. Maybe somebody had read Rage and asked him what he'd do if there were copycat crimes. Maybe King just imagined it. But in a scene that was cut from the final draft of Salem's Lot, but added as bonus material to the recent re-release, lead character and author Ben Mears is talking to his girlfriend Susan. Ben is writing a book called The Night Creature about a child killer, and Susan asks how Ben would feel if someone read his book and was inspired to perform copycat crimes, like the kid who saw Psycho and then killed his grandmother. Here is that cut passage from Salem's Lot. It starts with Ben responding. I'd like to think he would have killed her anyway, he said. That's brutal, I suppose. What I mean is, I wish she hadn't been killed at all. But since she was, I hope Hitchcock isn't an accessory after the fact. You know, people used to argue that drugstore pornography, stuff like beach blanket gangbang, encouraged sex crimes. Then the government did a study and said that was full of shit. Most sex criminals are Eagle Scout types with severe repression problems. Like the old Inquisitors who used to stretch teenage blondes on the rack and run their hands all over their bodies, searching for witches' tits and marks of the devil, then reaming out their vaginas with red-hot pokers. The kid who masturbates in the bathroom over a skin magazine doesn't want to run out and rape a six-year-old and then cut her up. A shy retiring bank clerk who has no sex outlets at all and who broods in his room night after night may. End quote. Susan responds, quote, In other words, if a man is going to do it, he'll do it regardless? I distrust generalizations like that, he said. If The Night Creature is published and six months later a series of crimes with the same M.O. pops up, 
I'd lose a lot of sleep. A writer who won't take moral responsibility may be a good writer, but he's a shitty human being in my book. End quote. The passage goes on, but damn, in 1975, writing his second published novel, King put forth an attitude that he would, more than 20 years later, act upon. Since 1997, King has spoken at various times about rage and its possible connections to the school shootings. In his autobiographical writing manual, On Writing, he dismisses rage as the most troubling of the Bachman books. In the opening to Richard Bachman's 2007 novel Blaze, King says it's a good thing that rage is out of print. But he spoke most about rage in a recent essay, simply entitled Guns, released to the Kindle in January of 2013, costing only 99 cents. It's primarily a diatribe calling for stricter gun control, and I've found these types of political papers rarely change any minds, so I'd only suggest reading it if you're of a similar mindset already. But I read so I could get King's most recent reflection on the cultural impact of rage, and for that I was rewarded. In Guns, King says that he's never apologized for writing rage and he never would. Quote, It took more than one slim novel to cause Cox, Pierce, Lucatus, and Carneal to do what they did. They were unhappy boys with deep psychological problems. Boys who were bullied at school and bruised at home by parental neglect or outright abuse. Unquote. He also writes, quote, My book did not break Cox, Pierce, Carneal, or Lucatus, or turn them into killers. They found something in my book that spoke to them because they were already broken. End quote. But then the rub. Quote, Yet I did see rage as a possible accelerant, which is why I pulled it from sale. You don't leave a can of gasoline where a boy with firebug tendencies can lay hands on it. End quote. Later, he'd write, quote, I didn't pull rage from publication because the law demanded it. I was protected under the First Amendment, and the law couldn't demand it. I pulled it because, in my judgment, it might be hurting people, and that made it the responsible thing to do. End quote. Now, I understand that to the insane, anything can be a catalyst for crimes. Look at Charles Manson's fascination with the Beatles song Helter Skelter. But here, the book says, you feel pain. You feel unloved. Charlie felt unloved, and he fixed it with a gun. Seems to me a bit different. So in my opinion, should this book be in print? Yes. To coin a hackneyed phrase, removing this book from print is letting the terrorists win. But it's King who has to live with every teen he directly inspires with this book. And as he wrote in Salem's Lot, those people would likely have gotten the guns anyway and done the same things anyway, but with rage out of print, at least he doesn't have to stay up nights regretting a part he may have played. But beyond if the book should be censored, the question I'm really here to answer is, is this book any good? And to address that, I'd like to read another quote from King's Guns essay talking about rage. Quote, I pulled it with real regret, not because it was great literature, with the possible exception of Arthur Rimbaud, teenagers rarely pen great literature, but because it contained a nasty, glowing center of truth that was more accessible to me as an adolescent. Adults do not forget the horror and shamings of their childhood, but those feelings tend to lose their immediacy, except perhaps in dreams, where even old men and women find themselves taking tests they have not studied for with no clothes on. The violent actions and emotions portrayed in rage were drawn directly from the high school life I was living five days a week, nine months of the year. The book told unpleasant truths, and anyone who doesn't feel a qualm of regret at throwing a blanket over the truth is an asshole with no conscience. As far as I'm concerned, high school sucked when I went, and probably sucks now. I tend to regard people who remember it as the best four years of their lives with caution and a degree of pity. For most kids, it's a time of doubt, stress, 
painful self-consciousness and unhappiness. They're actually the lucky ones. For the bullied underclass, the wimps, the shrimps, and the girls who are routinely referred to as scags, bags, or hoes, it's four years of misery and two kinds of hate. The kind you feel for yourself, and the kind you feel for the jackwads who bump into you in the halls, pull down your shorts in gym class, and pull out some charming nickname like queer boy or frog face that sticks to you like glue. End quote. I read that long passage because I do want to say, if you are a frog face or a skag, if you're a kid full of doubt, stress, self-consciousness, and unhappiness, this book may speak to you. In my mind, this is a book that can only appeal to that class. And by saying that, I may be admitting the king is right. I remember horrors and shamings of my old childhood and adolescence, and I have many. Buy me a beer sometime, and I can share a horror story or two that would frighten even King. But yes, those feelings lose their immediacy. And thank God. If they didn't, how could we bear to go on? But I think that is why when I was 13, this book clicked with me. Coming back to it, my memory from my teenage reading was that this was one of the best Bachman books. Why? Because it was a fantasy story for the disaffected who thought themselves to be bright. 13-year-old me escaped to Charlie Decker's classroom away from my own, away from teachers who would mock me for not learning my Spanish homework, from playgrounds that were sometimes bloody and often painful. Yes, King, as a teenager, I wanted to be Charlie Decker, and I think you did too. But reading this as an adult, my god, did I find this book to be horrible. It's full of self-important teenage characters whose only real beliefs are in their own immortality and righteousness. With its surface Freudian themes of pop psychology and its anti-hero gunman, this is an adolescent book, a work as immature as its teenage author and its teenage protagonist. Truthfully, I think King is too self-congratulatory in saying this book contains a nasty glowing center of truth. Yes, there is truth that high school can suck for many teenagers, perhaps even most teens. There is truth about how cliques form and can serve to make even the members of that clique feel pressured to keep up appearances. But these are hackneyed ideas that have been covered to death by this point in movies and literature, and King's book Rage does nothing more than say the same thing that's been said a thousand times. He just says it in a more violent way. More, Rage was written for a specific audience, to preach to the choir, so to speak. But if you're not a disaffected teen who needs an escape, this book has nothing for you. It offers no new insight. It has no analysis or critique. Only a statement that high schools are nasty places filled with nasty people. Let's contrast. In King's 2013 essay, Guns, the author discusses the state of firearms in 2013 America, but he also proposes what he thinks to be a reasonable compromise that could lessen gun deaths while keeping the Second Amendment intact. It's a statement followed by a hypothesis and insight. In King's 1971 novel, Rage, the author reveals the state of high school angst and offers superficial insight that everyone is really the same, looking to break out of it. But there's no real insights, no real solutions beyond grab a gun, beat down the oppressors. Yes, one is an essay for political bent, and one is a novel who's theoretically there to entertain. But if you're going to say your novel contains nasty, glowing truths, it needs to be more than just a, hey, this is shitty. Truthfully, I think the glowing center of truth that was accessible to King as an adolescent is that this was King's method of coping. As I mentioned in my Carrie review, he's been open that he was an overweight kid who felt like a social outcast, and he would escape into the world of comics and movies and books. He coped with his high school experience in a cathartic and healthy way. 
he wrote a fantasy in which a Mary Sue-like character with whom he could relate gained power and outsmarted all those around him. More, I can almost guess that while writing, this teenaged king thought he was penning the next catcher in the rye. Look at the similarities. Both are texts that deal with disaffected teenage males. Both have some vulgar language and looks at sex, both told in the first person, both protagonists viewing themselves as having adult thought processes. They're both exceedingly clever, and they both view the world of the adult with suspicion, believing their teenage selves to be more honest, to be better. And when I was reading Rage, the writing style was nagging at me. It was very much emulating someone, and I was trying to figure out who it was, someone of that time. I went back and I looked at the works of Jack Kerouac and Hunter S. Thompson, trying to figure out who is it that King is trying to take the voice of in this. And then it finally hit me. It's J.D. Salinger's. Both books employ the slang terms of their time and use this stream-of-consciousness type of storytelling that makes the book feel conversational. The first-person prose coming across like a story you might hear in group therapy. If J.D. Salinger created Catcher to speak to the 50s and 60s kids, I'm willing to bet teenage Stephen King thought getting it on would speak to the kids of the 60s and 70s. But dear lord, this book lacks the craft, the insight, the character depth, and the heart of Salinger's classic. So I must agree with what King said in Guns. Rage is not great literature. It's not even very good literature. But I bet this is as personal to King as a diary entry, a memory of a very hard time in his life put on paper. That said, I do think this book would appeal to one other group, aspiring writers. If you are writing and you think you're not very good, read Rage. It's written by a hugely successful author, one who I admire greatly and who I feel has a great ability to write characters, set scenes, and to engage a reader. And in Rage, you'll find flat, uninteresting characters where, I swear to God, the school's lawn is given more description than most of the students in Charlie's hostage algebra class. I think there's an inspiration for aspiring authors in proof that King had to hone his craft and work hard to improve his writing. He was not born with a golden pen in his hand that could endlessly pump out great literature. He had to write some bad books, books publishers didn't think were good enough to print, before he could write his classics. To me, that's what rage is. Much like I felt King's night shift story Jerusalem's Lot showed the evolution of King's story that would become the novel Salem's Lot, here I see the evolution of a writer by reading one of his earliest, most raw and unrefined samples. There are signs in Rage of the author King would grow up to be. His use of language, his ability to mark the passage of time, his ear for realistic dialogue, vestigial images of those are all here. As is King's use of brands and songs to set the mood quickly. Here being an older band, the Clinch Mountain Boys and their song Blue Ridge Breakdown. And there is one moment, one brief moment in this book that actually shows the genius King will eventually have when a sharpshooter and Charlie have an altercation, and Charlie's reaction to it. It is a moment that made me wonder, what the hell is going to happen next? The only moment that I felt captivated by this book. There's also a bit of teasing, with King writing about Charlie's mother liking Donald Westlake books, and Charlie's father being disgusted and feeling betrayed when he found out Donald Westlake was a pseudonym for author Richard Stark. If this was written by King in the first draft of Getting It On, or added when he found out it would be published as Rage under an assumed name, I don't know. But to me, it stands out as a wink to the audience of, hey, maybe this Bachman guy isn't who I think he is. Especially since 
Richard Bachman got half his name from Richard Stark. Yes, King would become a great writer, but he wasn't one when he did Rage. And it's not intended to be young adult fiction, but that's the only group where I think will enjoy it. And then, well, let's just hope they have a good head on their shoulders. I'll admit, it took me four times longer to read Rage at 170 pages than it did to read Salem's Lot at nearly 700 pages, and that's all because I felt no compulsion to return to Rage. Each time I put down the book, I never felt excited to pick it back up and step back into Charlie's classroom. But while I may not have enjoyed Rage, I'm very, very excited for what's coming up next, both for me as a reader and here on Books and Nachos. NowPlayingPodcast.com is about to finish up its Robocop retrospective, and after that, Jacob, Stewart, and I will be reviewing the movies based off the short stories from Stephen King's Night Shift. There are 22 movies we'll be reviewing. It will be nearly half our reviews for 2014, and here at Books and Nachos, I'm going to be reviewing all 20 short stories from that 1978 collection. I've already done two of them. I reviewed the two that were reprinted in the 2005 version of Salem's Lot, and you can hear those reviews in the archives at booksandnachos.com. But next week, I start reviewing the rest of the Night Shift collection. So join me as I review the King short story, The Woman in the Room, then after that, The Boogeyman, Quitter's Inc., The Ledge, Graveyard Shift, and so many more right here at booksandnachos.com. And I will prepare you. As many of these stories are much simpler and much shorter, my reviews will also be shorter, but I'll be doing one podcast for every short story in Night Shift, and I'll be releasing one each week from now until mid-May. If you'd like to see the schedule of reviews so you can read along, come to the Books and Nachos forums. There's a link from booksandnachos.com. I'll publish the schedule there. And if you're enjoying these reviews, please come to the forums or drop me an email at show at booksandnachos.com and let me know. These reviews take a ton of time, not just to read and write and record, but to research and to fact check. I've gotten some great emails and tweets from listeners, and it's really motivating me to keep going. But please, keep the feedback coming. I know one listener has already said that Rage is one of his favorite King novels, an opinion I obviously don't share. But if you think Rage is one of King's best, drop me a line and let me know why. I always love to discuss these books and stories with other King constant readers. So that's it for this first Bachman book. I'll be back next week with The Woman in the Room. And until then, please remember to support your local bookstore. Or in this case, local used bookstore. Thank you for listening to this episode of Books and Nachos. If you enjoyed this podcast, please help spread the word about our show by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. You can also find dozens more book reviews at our website, booksandnachos.com. The music for Books and Nachos is The Right Prescription by Chai Weapon, which can be downloaded at podsafeaudio.com. Books and Nachos is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2014, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. The long walk was done while the author was a freshman at the University of Fuck Me. Maybe Bachman's output was that of Mostoff, Moose, Moose, Miller. How he can rip out five novels and Charlie creates this womb. If you go back and listen to my review of Carrie here at Books and Nachos, Books, Money Penny, Pushy. Carrie the Caterpillar started to emerge from her car- cartoon. More. 
through overhood convert over her overhood later in life on that hunting trip with his father he overheard the men talking overhood what the fuck it could be the game natural born killers that's not a game 